So our passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you suppose the church of God, or I'm sorry, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well, my desire this morning is to um, look at this passage in its entirety. We're not going to obviously have time to go into detail over each verse, but this is a very familiar passage, um, especially verses 23 through 26, where it's um, the account of the Lord's Supper there. Um, But oftentimes we focus on just those verses and we will lose the the passage as a whole or we miss the context of the passage. And so um, obviously we are jumping into the middle of a chapter here, um, but there is some background. Um, Beginning in verse 17 through 22, Paul is addressing a specific issue that was going on there in the Corinthian church. And the setting seems to be that at this time, the, the church would gather together um, and they would have a, a meal, sort of a, a fellowship meal. And they would bring, they would, uh, each one would bring something to share at this meal. And then following the meal, they would observe the Lord's Supper. And in the church at that time, um, it was comprised of both you know, working individuals, uh, wealthy individuals, and slaves. And so naturally, not everyone was able to bring an equal amount of food. Some probably were not bringing anything at all, uh, just from their um, 
stage in life as a slave. Um, and then this, of course, resulted in a problem, and that's what Paul is addressing here. And there were some serious problems that were evident in, uh, here in Corinthians, but specifically in this passage. And we see the first one there in verse 18, where he says, um, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. So in the immediate passage, there seemed to be some division. And one of the things that's clear is this sociological division. You had the division between the rich and the poor. Um, but it seems right to say this is not the only place that division existed among the Corinthians. Because if you go back to chapter 1, Paul rebukes them for making divisions. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. So they were making these unnecessary distinctions. I'm following this guy. Well, I'm following that guy. Uh, divisions in that way. And then in chapter 6, Paul rebukes them for going to court to sue one another. Again, here we've got divisions over who knows what, but they were clearly um, having problems in the church with division. And then uh, in verse 21 here, we also see another problem. In your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. So selfishness, this selfishness of bringing something and then not sharing it, indulging in what you've brought and not sharing it with the others. Um, those who arrived first would eat their food because others hadn't even gathered yet. Uh, one commentator brought out that, you know, the, the slaves would come later. And by that point, many had already eaten everything, some to the point of drunkenness. And so you get the idea here. It's almost like these pagan festivals where you get together and just have this drunken fest. And then immediately following that, you, they tried to observe the Lord's Supper. So what should the gathering of the saints be like? It should be a time for sharing, for fellowship, for unity, for building one another up, and then just kind of covering it all. It should be a time for love. And what was ultimately at the root of the Corinthians' problems was a lack of love. And if you skip forward just a few chapters in 1 Corinthians to chapter 13, here we have this great chapter on love. And in verses 4 through 7, you have this description of love. Um, and I just want to read through this and think about, as we're reading it, think about the problems that existed there in the Corinthian church and how these descriptions of love would have influenced had they practiced this. So, um, chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Another translation says it does not dishonor others. And then the New King James says does not behave rudely. And then going on, it says, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So if love was being practiced as described in these verses, the situation back here in chapter 11 
would not have even needed to have been addressed. Love, or more specifically, you might say a lack of love, was the root problem here for the Corinthians. So that gives kind of a background a little bit of what was going on in verses 17 through 22. And then that brings us to the familiar passage here, verse 23 through 26. But before we can get into that, we need to understand a little bit about the setting here of the Lord's Supper as well. This was the Passover uh, meal when Jesus said these words, when Jesus uh, broke the bread and passed the bread around and the juice or the wine. It was... The setting was the uh, Passover meal. And if you would, let's go ahead and turn back to Matthew's gospel and look at this account. One thing that that really was amazing to me just to to think of, um, I was reading one commentary and they brought out that 1 Corinthians was written before, likely written before any of the gospels were written, which obviously Paul could have heard Um, from one of the disciples about the Lord's Supper. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And the account is identical to what you see in each of the Gospels. So it seems as though the Lord had revealed, somehow specifically revealed to him what had taken place on this night. And it lines up uh, exactly with what we see in the rest of the Gospels. Well, Matthew chapter 26, and we're not going to read this whole passage. I just want to focus on a few things here. So Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says... My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And then skip down to verse 26. While they were eating, so this same night, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." So you see here, there's a, there is a specific setting here that this the Lord's Supper took place at. It was the Passover meal. It was not just an ordinary gathering. You know, they're out walking and Jesus just stops what they're doing and observes the Lord's Supper. It had a specific setting. It was the Passover. Well, obviously we're familiar with the Passover, but it is really good to think about the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover. And to do that, I want to go back and look at Exodus uh, chapter 12. And then eventually we're going to get back here to, to 1 Corinthians. So as you know, the children of Israel were in bondage for 400 some years there in Egypt. And the Lord raised up Moses to deliver Israel out of bondage. 
and um, by his mighty hand, he starts performing these great um, wonders before the Egyptians. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he won't let uh, the Israelites go. And so the Lord brings about this final plague, this final show of, of his power, and he's going to destroy all the firstborn in the land of Israel. I'm sorry, in the land of Egypt. And um, so the Lord gives specific instructions to the Israelites. How are they going to be distinguished from the Egyptians so that they're not also destroyed? And the way they were to do that was they were to take a lamb, and they were to slaughter it and take some of the blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost. And then they were to have a feast and um, to, to cook the meat and have a feast, this Passover feast. And so that's, that's kind of the um, big picture of what was taking place. But I want to look specifically here in uh, Exodus 12. And I'm going to stop periodically and make some comments, again, just showing how this is a picture This is a foreshadowing of what was happening there um, with the Lord on the the night, the eve of his crucifixion. So beginning in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And we're going to stop right there. The beginning of months. This event was to be such a big deal that Israel was always going to be looking back. They were going to set their calendars based on this. This was the time when the Lord delivered us from physical bondage out of Egypt. This is the beginning of, you might say, the nation of Israel. When God did this great wonder, this is what we keep looking back to. Well, what about for us? What about for the Christian? What about for the New Testament church? Do we look back to God's deliverance there in Egypt? I mean, it is. It's spectacular. We don't look back, though, to that for ourselves. We look back to that as a picture of what happened on Calvary, that God delivered us from bondage to sin. That's what we look back to. That's the beginning of the the church was Calvary, the crucifixion. Well, then going on, verse 3 Um, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb." Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So here we have this idea of the unblemished lamb. And clearly that points us back to Christ. There you have John 1. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is it not a picture of Christ here? And then going on, verse 6. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. 
and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the blood is the mark. That is what is going to set apart the children of Israel from those in Egypt. The blood, that is the mark that the the death angel was looking for. There's the blood, I will pass over. Well, what about for the Christian? Does the blood of bulls and goats mark us? No. The blood of Christ is what marks us. That's what saves us from the wrath of God. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, blood has been shed. What blood was it? Well, 1 Peter 1 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, That's the blood that is marking the Christian, the blood of Christ, the spotless. And that fits in perfectly with this idea of the unblemished lamb, the unblemished and spotless lamb of God. Well, then verse 14 says this, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And then skip ahead um, to verse 24. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised you, uh, promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. So there's this idea here of this needs to be remembered. This is significant. We're going to look back and we're going to continually remember what the Lord did there by sparing us. When your children ask, you're going to point back and say, God delivered us there. You need to remember this. Well, go looking ahead then back to the passage we were at. Do this in remembrance of me. You see that same idea, the remembering of what the Lord has done. In Deuteronomy six, uh, 16, verse 3, it says, So that you re- may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So that's the setting. That's the background here of when Jesus... Um, said these words there about um, his uh, breaking of the bread and the passing of the cup. Throughout the history of Old Testament Israel, they continued to remember and look back to this day when God brought them up from Egypt. And they celebrated 
the Passover with the feast as was prescribed. I mean, obviously there were times you'd look back and they had forgotten and then they would, they would do it again. They would have this Passover feast. But generally speaking, Israel tried to remember um, the Passover feast. Well, back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus is eating the Passover feast with his disciples. And it is in this context of the Passover feast Uh, that Jesus says in verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. And then in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see here, just to sum this up, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is why there was a lamb that was slain back there. Why? Did that lamb really... Bare Israel? No. It was a picture of what was to come, that there would be a lamb one day that would save from sin. He is the perfect spotless lamb. No more do we look back to physical Egypt and remember physical deliverance. No, we look back to when Christ died on Calvary and when his blood was shed and when we were delivered from bondage to sin. We look back to the, not a sacrifice, but the sacrifice that atoned for all our sin. It's as if in this passage here, it's as if Jesus is saying, you remember the deliverance of Egypt. That's what we're doing right here in this Passover feast. You remember deliverance from Egypt, but something far greater is being fulfilled here. Something that you need to remember in the days to come. You need to remember and look back to this event that is taking place on that evening. Well, let's look at this a little closer here. Verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or as it says in Luke's account, this is my body, which is given for you. And then verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So why this distinction between the body and the blood? So you've got the bread, you've got the, the drink, the wine or juice, whatever it was. Um, and then Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. Why the distinction? One commentator pointed out the bread represents his body, which is significant because he really did come in the flesh. God incarnate, God came in the flesh. But also his body represents more than just the fact that he came. It represents the perfect life that he lived. His body is for us. His righteous acts that he did are for us. So you could say his righteousness is for us. And then the wine, what does that represent? Well, it represents his blood, which uh, symbolizes his sacrificial atoning death. In Matthew's account, which we read earlier, it says, This is my blood which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So his blood was shed so that we might be forgiven. So do you see here the the two elements in, in the Lord's Supper or in communion, bread and juice, they each have significance. The fact that Christ's righteousness is for us, it is it is credited to our account. And then you have his blood that was shed so that we no longer are under the guilt of sin. Our sins have been paid for. Our sins have been washed clean. Well, then in this uh, verse 25 here, it says, 
um, the new covenant in my blood. So what is that? Well, the old covenant given on Mount Sinai was dependent on Israel keeping their part of the deal. If they would follow the Lord and keep his commandments, then they would be blessed. But if they forsook him and forsook his commandments, then there would be a curse. And how was sin dealt with in the old covenant? Well, time after time, year after year, they would continue to come and offer sacrifices. But um, let's, let's turn here to Hebrews chapter 10. This, I think this says it better than I can. Hebrews chapter 10, of course, and then the title at the top of this chapter in my Bible says, One sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. So it kind of gives you a clue as to where this chapter is going. But in verse 1, it says this, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we're going to stop right there. That kind of summarizes the old covenant. It, it was pointless. There was no uh, real cleansing from sin in the old covenant. It was just time after time of offering of sacrifices. But then, moving on to verse 11 here, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And by the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, and in this covenant, uh, I'm sorry, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And I wanted to just read here a a quote from uh, John MacArthur that I thought really summed this up well. Says, and Jesus says there's a new covenant. God is making a new promise. You know what that promise is. It isn't anymore the old one of law. It isn't anymore the old one of you have to do this sacrifice and this sacrifice and this one. It's a brand new promise. Here it is. I will forgive all forgive your sins for all time. And that was new. They had to make sacrifices continuously. I will make one sacrifice forever, and that will be Christ. And his one sacrifice and his one ratification by blood will end the sacrificial system for good. That's a new promise. God says, I'll give you total forgiveness forever. I'll give you eternal life forever by the blood of Christ. And it was as if on the cross, Jesus was taking his blood and signing on the dotted line. That's the new covenant. 
the blood of Christ, not the blood of a lamb on a doorpost where God says, I'll take you out of the land and get you to the promised land. That's temporal and impermanent. But the blood of the new covenant where God says, I'll take you into heaven and I'll forgive your sin forever unconditionally because of Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. And that, that's, that's exactly what is being said here. This idea of the new covenant in his blood. It's that no more do we need sacrifices for sin. The sacrifice has been made. Our way has been made open for us to come uh, unashamed before the Father. Well, moving on then in 1 Corinthians here. Verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion, the the communion service or the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. What are we proclaiming? We are proclaiming that Jesus came in the flesh and lived a perfect sinless life and died a substitutionary atoning death which grants all who believe full acceptance and access to the Father. Again, that kind of looking back to the elements, how, how do we remember all this? The elements, the bread, his life, the, the juice, his death, that is what we're remembering. That is what we are proclaiming. Well, who are we making this proclamation to? Well, I would say first, we're making it to ourselves We need to be regularly reminded of this glorious reality. Remind yourself of the gospel. When we take communion, it's a reminder to ourself of what God has done for us. And second, it's a reminder to one another. In taking communion together, we are reminding one another of what God has done for us in Christ And we are also recognizing and acknowledging our part in the body of Christ. This isn't done in private or in secret. It's done corporately as a body. It is something that should unify the body, that brings us together. And then finally, it's a proclamation to the lost world. All have sinned and judgment is coming. But those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb can have their sins forgiven. There's so many songs that we sing that you might think of. Are you washed in the blood? But this is one I thought of. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is what we are remembering. That's what we are proclaiming when we take the Lord's Supper. Well, moving on then to this last section, uh, verses 27 through the end of the chapter. Admittedly, this is a difficult section. Paul speaks of judgment, and he speaks of sickness and death. And the obvious question that comes up when we read this is, who is Paul speaking of? Is he speaking of believers, or is he speaking of unbelievers? And following the context of the passage, I think we'll see that he is speaking of believers. And I want to just point out a few things here. Verse 29, he says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And then verse 31, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
So he's speaking of judgment, and what's the outcome of this judgment? Well, verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And of course, when uh, New Testament speaks of sleep, uh, it's speaking of death. But verse 32, I think, is what really shed some light and bring some clarity to this passage. He says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So notice this different, the, the way that he differentiates between judgment or discipline and condemnation. So let's ask this, who is disciplined? In in the scripture, who is disciplined? Well, Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So right away we see discipline is reserved for those whom the Lord loves. Well, who is condemned? Right here in the passage, we see that you not be condemned along with the world. The world is condemned. Well, what about the believer? Is the believer condemned? Well, Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for the Christian. So I think it's safe to say, um, and again, this is, this is a difficult passage, but I think it's right to say that this is speaking of believers here. Um, and I just want to stop at this point and say there's a good question that should be asked. Who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Because if this is speaking of Christians here and there's judgment and there's um, weakness, sickness, and death. It's like, well, who then can take or who can partake of the Lord's Supper? Are there stipulations in Scripture as to who can and who can't? Well, again, let's look at the, the big context here. The Lord's Supper on the night, the eve of his crucifixion, who was there? It was the Lord and his disciples. And then in the context here in Corinthians, who is present at this time when they're having celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's the gathered church. It's the, the believers, the, those who came together professing their faith in Christ are gathered together and they partake of communion. So I think it's, you could say simply, the Lord's Supper is for Christians. It's for those who profess faith in Christ. Well, this is stepping outside the, the bounds of this passage a little bit, but it seems right to ask this, what about children? Um, Can a child take part in communion? Well, if a child is a believer, then they are part of the family of God, and they are who Jesus is speaking to when he says, do this in remembrance of me. But what about a child who wants to partake of communion but hasn't shown any evidence of being converted? And for that, I would say this is an opportunity to share the gospel with them. What are we commemorating when we have the Lord's Supper? Explain that to them. Um, Let me just turn back real quick to this passage in Exodus that we already read. He says, um, When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean to you? 
you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. It's like the writer is anticipating. Your children are going to be wondering, like, what is this all about? This is when you tell them what it's all about. And it's the same way here in our setting. When your children have questions like, why are we doing this? It's a wide open door to explain to them, this is what the Lord has done for us. Your child's curiosity is a natural place to explain the gospel to them. Um, Andrew shared a humorous story with me um, about a time that communion was being observed in a church and it was you know somber and quiet and everything and all of a sudden this voice from the back hollers out blood and what had happened was the um, they were passing the elements around and apparently the child must have asked his mom you know what is this and his mom, and in the explanation, blood came, you know, was one of the words she used. And blood, you know, it's like the shock. What are we doing? But in a sense, that, that ought to be there. Like, what is going on here? What are we doing? No, not that the juice itself is the literal blood, but that it's symbolizing something. We are remembering something very important here, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. So again, this is a wide open door to share with our children uh, about the death of Christ. Well, another question that might come up here, do you have to be baptized to take communion? Well, in most instances where we see baptism in the New Testament, it immediately follows conversion. And a few examples that I thought of was there Philip, you know, as he's on, he gets uh, on, the, on the way there with the Ethiopian and uh, the Ethiopian, is he's opening up the scriptures to him, and he, he sees something of Christ, and they stop. You know, what prevents me from being baptized? If you believe, and they go down and they're baptized. And then you also have there uh, Paul, as he's in prison, and the, the jailer comes out, serves, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And it says that, that very evening, he and his whole household were baptized. So it seems right to say in scripture we see baptism immediately following conversion and then the Lord's Supper is in the context of the gathered church of believers. So in other words, conversion, then baptism, then communion. That seems to be the implied norm in the New Testament. That's the normal pattern. Both baptism and communion are commanded in the New Testament. So a question that we should wrestle with is why would a Christian obey one and not the other? If both are commanded, then we ought to gladly say, then I want to do both. Not this thing of, well, I'm willing to do one, but not the other. No, we ought to be in full submission to what God says. I want to do both. Both are a proclamation. When you go out to be baptized, you're saying, I associate with this body of believers right here. I am a Christian. But also in communion, it's a proclamation as well. I am a believer. Both are a proclamation. So it seems right to say the norm is that, yes, communion is for believers, and so is baptism. The two go together. Well, back to our passage here in 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 28, we are instructed to examine ourselves, but a man must examine himself And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
Why? Why do we need to examine ourselves? Because we don't want to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And that's what he says there in verse 27. Whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So what should we be examining? What are we looking for? What is this idea of an unworthy manner? And the first thing that I would say is unrepentant sin. That is something that would be unworthy to come before the Lord and celebrate with the rest of the church the Lord's Supper if you're living in unrepentant sin. Another would be sinning against the body, against another brother or sister. If your behavior is stumbling the brethren or wounding them, you shouldn't take communion. And remember the context here that we just looked at. Here the church is coming together, and some are not even waiting for one another. They're just indulging in what they've brought with no thought whatsoever of the rest of the church. And then they try to come immediately after that and celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's not right. That, that was an obvious sin, and it, it flows right from this idea of the unrepentant sin. They needed to deal with that problem first before they celebrated the Lord's Supper. A third thing that I thought of, making it into a work that saves you rather than a remembrance of what Christ has already accomplished for you. This is a real danger. It's kind of like, well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I was baptized and I take communion. No, that is wrong. Those are symbols of what God has done for you. It's not a work that we do to merit righteousness um, before the Lord. And I'm sure we could go on with many other examples, but I thought those were a few that kind of give an idea of what uh, this idea of an unworthy manner is. Or to put it in the positive, what characteristics or qualities should be present in our life? And the first one that I can think of is humility. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If that is a characteristic in your life, that's right. If pride is the primary characteristic in your life, that's a problem. A second one, brokenness. That idea of brokenness over sin. When sin, when you see sin, you're broken about it. You repent, you confess it, you turn from sin. David says this in Psalm 51, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we're talking about how can we come before the Lord and know that we're accepted, that we're not coming in an unworthy manner. Well, if you're, if you're following these two things, God is not opposed, or he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That means if we come in humility, he's well pleased. Or a broken heart you will not despise. He's not going to turn away anyone who comes in brokenness. And then a third one, honesty and integrity. Our lives should match up with our profession. No one should see us taking communion and be stumbled by the obvious unrepentant sin in our life. Basically, when, when I take communion, I should be saying to every one of you, I am a believer and I'm following the Lord. That's what I'm saying in taking communion. And if someone from the outside is looking in saying, that guy is taking communion, I can't believe it. I would have never guessed. That's a problem. That's a problem in me, and I need to be examining my own life. Well, what is the result of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? 
Well, verse 27 says they shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And verse 29 says um, he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself. And I'm just going to be honest here. I don't fully understand what this is saying. But to put it simply, this is serious. We shouldn't take this lightly. This is a serious matter. Well, it brings me then just in closing to a few questions. What should we do if we realize that we are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? The first thing I would say is abstain. Abstain from the Lord's Supper. Secondly, confess the sin. Repent and return. Right? If, if the, the sin is dealt with, then return. Return to the Lord's table here and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper with the church. But first, confess the sin and repent. And it made me think of this passage in Matthew. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, go ahead and do the offering and then you can work on that other thing later. No, leave your offering at the altar. Go be reconciled with your brother, then return and present your offering. In other words, worship to God is not the primary thing here. It's that our relationship with him and our relationship with one another first needs to be right, and then our worship is acceptable, is pleasing to him. And so we shouldn't get in this mentality that, well, I've got I've to do this, I've got to do this, even though there's chaos all around us. No, deal. We need to be sensitive in this area. If there's needs around me, deal with these needs, and then come before the Lord and remember his death with the church. Well, what about the person who feels their own weakness and unworthiness? Should they abstain? And here's a few examples that I thought of. You're, you're, you know, before taking the Lord's Supper, you're thinking back. It's like, you know, this week I, I know I was impatient with my wife. Or maybe someone's thinking, you know, I know I said some rude things to the kids. Or I really struggled in my thought life this week. Or even just the fact that, you know, I know I fell short of the glory of God this week. Is that a reason? Should that person abstain from uh, remembering the Lord, uh, the Lord's death with the church? Well, remember what we are remembering in the Lord's Supper. Jesus died for our sins once for all. We are accepted not because of our own works, but because of his perfect righteousness. Do you feel unworthy? You are unworthy. But Christ is worthy, and he is the only reason that we can stand before the Father. That is what we're remembering when we come together. We're not remembering, wow, I had a great week, now I can do this. No, we're remembering what God has done for us. Uh, Mason reminded me of a time, um, I don't know how long ago it's been, that Dick was sharing at communion. And Dick said this, looking at the juice cup, he said, sometimes I look into this cup and I think, this is my only hope. That's it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering, this is the reason that I can come before the Father, not because of my own righteousness, but because of his righteousness, because of his death. Christ died for my sins and I'm forgiven. That's what we're proclaiming to ourselves and to the, those that are gathered. My hope is built 
on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you feel unworthy? This is for you. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. That is why we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together, is because of what he has done for us. Well, what if you have a perfectly clear conscience before the Lord and have no unconfessed sin that you can think of? And again, I'm not saying perfection, but no unconfessed sin that you can think of. This time of communion is a reminder for you, too, that your only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness, not your performance, not your obedience. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to all of us to look away from ourselves and to the finished work of Christ. That's what we're doing. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, he doesn't say, do this in remembrance of your work. No, do this in remembrance of me. That is what we are to have our eyes on, our, our focus to, is to be on whenever we are remembering the Lord's death. Father, we confess the only reason that we can come before you today or any day is because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we, we claim no righteousness in ourselves. Lord, we know all our righteousness is just filthy rags before you. But Lord, you've, you've given a way that we can be right before you. Our sins can be forgiven. The righteousness of Christ can be credited to our account. And so, Lord, as we pass the bread and the juice around uh, today, Lord, we want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, we do desire that our lives would be clean vessels, Lord, that there would not be any disconnect between what we say and what we do. Lord, we want our lives to be examples to those around us, Lord, even to our children, to our lost family. Lord, we don't want to be a stumbling block to them. We want them to see Christ in us. So help us, Lord, help our lives to be a representation of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.